0: Good morning, brothers and
1: sisters. I'm very, very happy to be here today, uh, having the opportunity to share the Word of God with you this morning. Today, my sermon is about the wrath of God. The God of wrath, the God is real, and we have a weakness, the testimony of God himself to the scriptures, right, that this wrath is real. In Zephaniah 1:18, reads, Neither the silver nor the gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So today sermonette has three points. The source of the wrath of God, the severity of the wrath of God, and the salvation from the wrath of God. First of all, <clears throat> God has pronounced and manifested his anger through the scriptures and he has acted on it. The complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Korat and his family, the destruction of the entire population of the earth in the millions during the times of the flood are clear testimonies that God's wrath is real. He has displayed, as you see, his wrath against people, against nations, and against the entire population of the earth. So to understand God's wrath as one of his attributes, we must understand that the source and the nature of God's anger is quite different to our own anger. We must remember that God is holy, and all that he does, therefore, is also holy. His wrath is therefore just the divine and righteous indignation and reaction that is against all wickedness of men. The wrath of God is also provoked. If you read through the scriptures, it's very clear that the jealousy and also the wrath of God is provoked by men, his own creation. The Bible tells us that all that man does is contaminated with sin. For the, ra- for the heart of man is exceedingly wicked. We read that in Genesis 6-5, Psalm 53-2, for example. And the same scriptures tells us that we provoke God to anger every day. And in Psalm 7 11 it reads, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So if we are all declared wicked in front of the Holy God, it is clear that we are also provoking him to anger and he is angry with us every day. Thanks be to God that God is slow to anger, as the scripture tells us. For otherwise, we'll be consumed in the moment like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But we must explain here what this slow to anger means. The law of anger doesn't mean that God is going to leave sins without consequence. It doesn't mean he's not going to be angry to those against those who commit iniquity and wickedness. But it's related to how he is um, he's noventing his wrath immediately over those who deserve it, right? So that is what the slow to, uh, to anger means in the scriptures. Right. So, God tells us in Romans 9.22 that if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath prepare for destruction. So this leads lead us to the second point of the sermon, which is the severity of the wrath of God. He tells us that in no way he will leave sins unpunished. He will execute the eternal punishment on those who provoke him and under his wrath, and he will do it with the whole severity and intensity of the wrath that men deserve. A scripture tells us of the terrible day of his anger, and also tells us that the wicked men are accumulating short course of fire on their heads. In Romans 12:18, we find, Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So since God pronounced it, and the day of God is felten, as God is holy, and as he is immutable, for he himself has repeatedly said that that day is going to come. In Revelation we read, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Or in Nahum it reads, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the burning of his anger. So the Lord tells us that in no way sin will be left unpunished. <clears throat> the penalty of those sins is eternal condemnation for those who commit them. The scriptures indicate that the wrath of God is fierce and will be so in the day of judgment. For it should inspire fear and put men on their knees. But before proceeding with this, Let's clear on this matter, right? The the fear means that God is going to <coughs> that his wrath is going to inspire awe and fear due to his power, intensity and severity of his wrath. It's not going to be ferocious, for it's not going to be a sorry for that. For it's going to be unrestrained or brutal or savage. Right? So, the wrath of God will be expressed in the just and rational punishment towards men due to their sins and as they properly deserve. This punishment toward God, towards uh, people, to those who provoke him to anger, will be eternal, for the wrath of God towards sin has eternal consequences. So this leads us to the last point and most important point of this sermon, which is the salvation from the wrath of God. For there is only one way by which a man can escape escape God's wrath. And it is not from men, but from the Father himself, who gave his son to die for the salvation of his people and his promise through the scriptures. Let's read what Paul wrote in his letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 5. For God did not not appoint you to wrath, but to obtain salvation, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should give together we should live together with Him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are doing. <clears throat> Sorry for that. This passage and many other like this clearly indicate that the wrath of God does not abide on those who believe in the Son, the Christ our Saviour, as He appoints them to eternal life. As Jesus died for your sins, and as you confess Him as Lord and Savior in, in faith, a scripture tells us that you have been de- delivered from the wrath of God. Jesus appeased God's wrath against us by dying on the cross in our place, redeeming us with His blood. Therefore, those who from Jesus died on the cross have nothing to fear. To Jesus, for Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. And he took it upon himself. So so that we are totally reconciled with the Father through him. He was our propitiation, as we read in Romans 3.25. For Christ appeased the wrath of God against us, but not by diminishing, not by diminishing its intensity, not by nullifying it, not by making the wrath of God to have no effect, but he appeased the wrath of God over us by substitution. Jesus taking on himself the day of our redemption, the full severity, intensity, and magnitude of the wrath of God in place of those who God gave him to save. As for those who are not in Christ yet, it is my prayer that you now understand that you are still under the wrath of God because of your sins, and that the same wrath that was taken away from his people by Christ's substitution will inevitably be fallen on you if you don't have Christ Jesus as your Savior. It is my prayer that the Lord will open your eyes to see the condition of your soul and will grant you faith and repentance, bringing you to Christ and be sparing him of God's wrath and eternal punishment. Confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you will be safe. For those who belong to Christ doesn't have anything to to fear of the wrath of God, for Jesus took the wrath of God with himself Upon himself. Amen.
0: I'm not that short. Well, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. What a joy and what a pleasure it is to present the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, My sermon today will be dealing with the goodness of God, and I have three main points for those who are taking notes. The first point is God's goodness in creation, second is God's goodness in providence, and the third is God's goodness in redemption. So an easy-to-remember acronym for that is CPR, easy to remember, easy to visualize, but don't do that now. God's goodness in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first sentence we read in the Bible is that God created everything. Everything that exists, God made it. And in Genesis 1, 3 3 through 4, that's where we read that God is good. Listen to the words. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. So in thinking of God's goodness, the biblical writers compare him to light. And 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So when we think of something that is good in this world, it cannot compare to God because God is the source of all goodness and everything that is good comes from him. So everything that is good is inferior compared to God because God is the source of all things. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's what it means for God to be good. And when Jesus is teaching his disciples about loving your enemies, he says, this is how, this is how you love God, love your enemies like God. You do good for them because God causes his son to shine on the evil and the good, and he causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. That is how, brothers and sisters, we are more like God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So, going back to Genesis 1-3, God speaks, God says there is light, and that tells us that God is a God of light, and that he's a God who speaks, he communicates. He says, there's, let there be light, and there's light, and he creates the universe by the word of his power. So God is not shy, he is not uh, hidden, he is not scared of speaking, he's a God who speaks and he's communicating through his beautiful creation. Every time you see a good sunset or a good sunrise, that is God communicating something about himself and he's saying, I am a God of goodness, I'm a God who loves to create, I am a God who loves beauty. And on the sixth day, God created human beings and he made them in his image. That means every single person in here has been created in the image of God. Every person on the planet is in the image of God because God created them. It's not because human beings give their opinion and say, Oh, I think that human being has value. It's because God is the one who gives value. He's the source of all goodness. As we read on to Genesis 3, we find that the creation itself does not stay good. Human beings, although they've been blessed by God, they've been given good things by God, we rebel, right? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they disobey God. They turn their back against the giver of all life, and God exiles them but before he does that he speaks good news to them he says one day the seed of the woman the de- a descendant from the line of the woman is going to come he is going to crush the head of the serpents that this descendant who is going to be descended from mankind is going to do a redeeming work in the lives of humanity humankind is full of sin right sin is disobeying god it's turning from god and so Sin enters the world, suffering all around us, right? We, we don't have a perfect world. We live in a world that's fallen. But God still speaks through our suffering. He speaks in what is called providence. And providence is God directing, right, directing the events of life that do not make sense. And he uses them for his purposes, for his good purposes. So remember the story of Joseph in Genesis, right? He has 11 brothers. They hate him. They want to kill him. They're jealous. They throw him in a pit. They sell him as a slave, right? Imagine how awful that is. Your own family members betraying you, selling off as a slave. He gets to Egypt. He suffers. He gets falsely accused, gets thrown into prison. But at the end of his life, Joseph says the words found in Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, evil brothers, you meant evil. So human beings do evil. But then he says something more remarkable. He says, God meant it for good. So there's the same intention by evil human beings, and God means the same thing. He is meaning something good by it. And this is God's providence through suffering, that even in a fallen world full of suffering and earthquakes and tsunamis and wildfires, God uses suffering to communicate to us. So here's an here's a example. This is a great day. It's a pleasant day, fresh air. But think back a few months ago when there were wildfires in Canada, and for like a week... We couldn't even breathe fresh air. It smelled like barbecue, but there was no food. So, days like that are meant to remind us that when we have good days like this, we are supposed to be thankful. We're not supposed to think that it's a normal day, like this is normal. No, this is God blessing us. This is God speaking through His providence and showing us His grace so that when the bad days come, when the unpleasant days come, we do not complain. We don't uh, murmur to God. We don't take it for granted. This is how God operates through suffering. So we've seen God speaking through creation. We've seen God speaking through providence. But is there anywhere else where God speaks more clearly? Listen to the words of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, right? So God has spoken through his word. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that God, when God speaks The most clearly is in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word of God, become flesh, John 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the light of the world. The psalmist in Psalm 39, 6 says, in God's light, do we see light? So if you want to see light, if you want to see more clearly, if you want to understand this thing called reality, this thing called life, we look at Jesus because he is the light of the world. And as the hymn writer says, you guys know this hymn, Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Jesus is fairer, Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful hearts to sing. And how does Jesus make the woeful heart to sing? And that, my friends, is through the gospel, which is the good news from God concerning his son, Romans 1. The gospel is about experiencing the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. So when you look at Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, you experience God's goodness, and this is through the renewal power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is about God the Father, the giver of all things, giving you his most precious son, his eternal son, Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, and the Holy Spirit renewing your life. The gospel is about prodigal sons and daughters, undeserving sinners, being welcomed by God, a good God who welcomes them with open arms. The gospel is about God's goodness, to you and me and everyone who believes. You see, Jesus was not a stranger to suffering. He was the man of sorrows. Like Joseph, he was betrayed by his own brothers, right? Uh, They didn't even believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. One of his disciples sold him out for the price of a slave. And later on in their life, when they see him, they, they... when Joseph's brothers go to see him, they don't even recognize him. And so, the same thing with Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, his own countrymen didn't recognize that he was the Messiah come from God. Jesus suffered on the cross for the sins of the nations. You can see, Joseph rescued people from a famine. Jesus saves people from all nations. And because Jesus himself suffered, brothers and sisters, you can go to him and you can go and ask him for help because he knows what it means to suffer. He is a good God who can relate to us. He is this very God of very God, the second person of the Trinity, become human. And that's why we can go to him at our time of suffering. And so as I close, I'd like to encourage everyone here who believes in Jesus, be glad, rejoice, because this is what happened. Second Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, let light shine of darkness, made his light shine in your hearts, to give you the light of the knowledge of God. So if you're here, you're trusting in Jesus. It's not normal. It's not natural. Don't think it's just normal that you believe this. God spoke into your heart, and he brought new, He brought forth a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And if you're not saved, and you're here today, and if you're going to take anything away from this sermon, please take this away. If God who created all things, who is the most supreme, important being in the universe, were to give you anything that was not Him, right? So God is the greatest thing there is, He's the greatest being, and He were to give you anything there is, He were to give you money, fame, status, Instagram followers, He were to give you anything that you desire, even your own planet. But He weren't you he, he didn't give you Himself. He would be giving you an inferior gift. In the gospel, brothers and sisters, you get God. In his fullness, you get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you experience his goodness in that, and this is the goodness of God. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but you lose your soul? Jesus says that's a bad bet, your soul versus everything in the world. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He's the, the good shepherd of the sheep. He he leaves the 99, and he goes after the straying one. If you're here and you're not saved and trust yourself to God. Put your faith in him, and he's a mighty savior. He's a good savior. As the hymn writer says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.
2: God is love. God is love. These are the words the Apostle John inspired by the Holy Spirit uses in his first letter to describe God. Once in 1st John chapter 4 verse 8 and then again in First 16. Notice how he doesn't write God is loving. No, he writes God is love peculiar grammatically. But I believe the Apostle John is being intentional here. By saying that God is love as opposed to God is loving He's emphasizing to his readers that love is at the very core of who God is. God, in his innermost being, is love. Or inversely, God, without love, cannot or rather does not exist. And to truly understand this truth, that God is not merely loving, but is in his essence love, today we will take some time to consider first who God is, a triune God of love, which will then help us to bask revel in, delight, and rejoice in the perfect love we enter into through Jesus Christ the Son. So two main points for this sermonette. First, the triune God of love. And second, the triune God's act of love. So first, the triune God of love. As Christians, we believe in a triune God. Here at North Shore, we occasionally recite parts of the Athanasian Creed, confessing with saints of old this belief in the Trinity. Hear these words from the Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Various texts in scripture attest to the Trinity, such as Matthew 28, verse 9, in which Jesus commands his disciples in the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that this text indicates that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, although three distinct persons, all have one singular name suggesting that the three persons are equal and share one essence. But not only is our God just a triune God, he is at his core a triune God of love. How do we know this? One way to get an answer to this question is to ask and answer another question. What was God doing before creation? Before God created the heavens and the earth and filled them, what were the three persons of the Trinity doing? We find an answer in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. In John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus, the Son, is praying to God the Father and prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, speaking of his disciples here, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. From eternity past, in the Trinity, God the Father was loving the Son. And the Spirit, what was the Spirit doing? The Spirit was making of the Father's love, making the Father's love known to the Son. Just as a child experiences and knows a parent's love through a loving word or a warm embrace, the Son experienced and knew the Father's love through the Spirit. And we see this relationship of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit most concretely at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Their God, the Father, declares, this is my Son whom I love. And this declaration is accompanied with the Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus, the Son. So at Jesus' baptism, we see the Father making known his love for the Son through the giving of the Spirit, just as the Father has done for all eternity. So to get back to our original question, how do we know that God, at his core, is a triune God of love? We know this because there was a time when God was not yet a creator or ruler or judge, but never has, been, has there been a time in which the three persons of the Trinity were not united in the fellowship of love. The Father always loved the Son through the Spirit, making love such a central aspect of who God is, God's nature and essence, that the Apostle John can write that God is love. This is not to say that God is not the creator, ruler, and judge, or have other attributes, but it is to say that all his activity is governed by his love. And not only is God's love at the center of who he is, it is the source of and what motivates all that he does. It was the very love that the father had for the son that prompted him to create others, like you and me, that he could also love. In the words of Michael Reeves, quote, It is that the father has always enjoyed loving another. And so the act of creation by which he creates others to love seems utterly appropriate for him. End quote, and well said. Not only did the love shared between the members of the Trinity prompt God to create others, but it was that very love that motivated God to give his beloved son when those he created rebelled and sinned against him. Getting us to point two, the triune God's act of love. It's in the giving of the father's son and the laying down of the son's life that the triune God of love most visibly reveals his love to us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we read, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What great love God shows to sinners like us. The Father, who for all eternity perfectly loved the Son, forsook, abandoned his beloved Son on the cross, and poured out his wrath upon the Son instead of upon us sinners. Why? because God is love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus, the son, willingly laid down his life for sinners. Why? Because God is love. First John chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And for those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, the Son, we are now in Christ, joined to the perfect fellowship of love, shared between the members of the Trinity, and are loved just as the Father loves the Son, Uh, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, as we read in John chapter 17, verse 23, praise God, for he is the triune God of love, and praise him for his act of love on the cross. A few quick applications. First, saints, rest in knowing that you have a God who is at his core a God of love. Let that truth comfort you in all circumstances of life. And rest in knowing that in Christ, God's love for you is perfect, just as the Father's love for the Son is perfect. Second, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, 1 John 4, verse 7. And last application, for those who do not believe and know in God and his act of love on the cross, turn from your sin, repent, enter into the perfect fellowship of love shared between the three persons of the Trinity and his church, his children, and let perfect love cast out fear.
3: Good morning, Church. Malachi three six Malachi three six seven reads, "For I, the Lord, do not change; therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my stat- statuses, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you," says the Lord of hosts. Here, the prophet Malachi speaks on behalf of the Lord. The people at the time were growing cold in their worship of the Lord. Yes, they got their identity back. They made it back home, and they worshiped the Lord, avoiding blatant idolatry. But they started to compromise in their worship practices and in their offerings to the Lord. But here, God declares that himself that he is unchanging, and he upholds his love to the descendants of Jacob, who, who is Israel, if they were to return to him, as opposed to Esau and Edom, who were destroyed. His unchanging love for them extends to us as we are adopted as into his fold. That unchanging love is a piece of God's unchanging nature, and that is what I will be speaking about this morning. An attribute of God that I will be speaking on today is his immutability. A.W. Pink says, immutability is one of the divine perfections which is not sufficiently pondered. It is one of the excellencies of the creator which distinguishes him from all his creatures. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, attributes, and determinations. Being, attributes, determinations. Let's follow that one by one, starting with God's being. Being or essence. I do not know and I can't tell you the exact makeup of that, makeup, that makes up the Godhead of the Trinity. But what I can tell you for sure is that he doesn't change. Paul speaks in Hebrews 13:8 encouraging the people to look to the Lord and not man. Paul says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What a beautiful truth that we could hold on to as Christians. At every point of his existence he was fully perfect and fully powerful. Before you were made, before North Shore existed, before creation, he was fully perfect And he still is fully powerful. God doesn't get better over time. We may perceive to know him more and more as we grow in sanctification. But that doesn't mean he's increasing in his holiness. And that glory will never fade. He is immutable in his essence. Secondly, God is unchanging in his attributes. When we were assigned this topic, uh, we were given a book and we were encouraged to look through. It's called The Attributes of God, written by the before-mentioned A.W. Pink. And as I flipped through the table of contents, I was met with 17 distinct attributes, and I was overwhelmed and overjoyed with how many distinct attributes that we can describe into, into our Lord. And Pink categorizes them into distinct 17 things. And it makes me wonder how many more attributes that we can't even put to words that can describe our great Lord. Some of which will not be mentioned today were knowledge, wisdom, patience, holiness, Psalm 105 reads, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. That goodness, which our brother Charles spoke earlier, is unchanging. It is immutable. And all the attributes that will be shared before me and after me today, you can take to the bank that it is immutable, that it is unchanging. And as you learn more and more about his character to the various Sundays and the various times you read the word, you can remember that that is unchanging, that his goodness is unchanging, and that his character will never waver and will never decrease. And last are his determinations or plans. In Isaiah 54.10, it reads, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Whatever he has in store for us, will not change. We may stress and we may wonder what his plans are, and we wish we could know the exact details of how he's gonna work it out step by step, but we simply won't. We can trust that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Now, I have to mention this, and it's very important. In the Bible, there are instances when his God's immutability seems unclear. For example, in 1 Samuel 15, 11, it reads, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. The Bible just said God regrets. Doesn't that imply that God made a mistake, but isn't God perfect? How can we trust that God is unchanging if here it says that he regretted making Saul king? And to add more to the confusion, if you move down to verse 29 in the same passage, he says, the glory of Israel, who is God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So he has regret, he doesn't have regret. How do we reconcile this contradiction? The answer to this relies on where the focus is. God's regret is not the regret that we think of. God did not change in his actions in 1 Samuel. Saul did. Saul became good to bad. We are sinful beings, and we as humans change. When God regrets, he is disappointed in the ordained outcome that he has set forth. Compared to our regret, our regret is typically looking back 2020 and wishing things were changed and stressing about the decisions that we've made. For example, you may regret coming late into church and you end up sitting under the ACs in the middle and you slowly realize there's no deacon here to save you, to turn off the AC and you're just gonna be cold for an hour, terrible. Or, or maybe you regret sitting out on the left side of the lawn tonight, today, and wow, I, I totally thought it wouldn't be sunny today, again, for the fourth time, and it's too late for you to awkwardly get up and move to that side, the shaded side. This is human regret. God knows that the outcome, God knows the outcome for He's omnis- omniscient, and laments and regrets over that outcome, but allowing it to happen, all to achieve a greater glory unto himself. So God's immutability in his plans also extend to his promises too. Spurgeon gives an example which I will paraphrase down to this. Have you ever read a passage in the Bible of his good promise and it was so sweet, so applicable, so encouraging? And then the next day or the next week you read it again and it wasn't so sweet. It was cold, it felt unrelatable, distant, and it just didn't hit you in the days or weeks prior. The promise itself that God gave didn't change. You did. Your heart did. This is an example of how man changes. God, who is unchanging, deals justly and accordingly. Wow. What a great hope filled with promises that, are, that God is unchanging. However, I have to remind you and remind everyone here that there are also the promises and the immutability and the unchanging of his promises of death. To those who break his laws and are unrepentant and apathetic to his glory. To those who break his laws, they don't see that God is unchanging. God is a loving God, yes, molding us to his image, but he's also a righteous judge. God hates sin. He will deal justly to those who revel in that sin. And that is unchanging. That is immutable. There will be no deal or there won't be partial credit when you get to the gates of heaven. Only by repenting of your sins and making Jesus the Lord of your life, you will be counted as clean. And that stands true from the beginning of days to the day Jesus returns. And that never changes and that never will. So, praise God that he is unchanging. Praise God that he is immutable. He is our rock. He is our comfort. Our family, our friends, they can like us one day and hate us the other. We can't even trust ourselves to be solid every single day. We, as humans, are so fickle. But God is unchanging. God is immutable. I'll close with Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Find joy and rest in his humility, immutability. Put your faith in Christ. Thank you. The supremacy
4: of God. Revelation 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The supremacy of God is his eternal superiority in glory, honor, and power. It begins in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. In creation, God is unquestionably supreme. His glory is seen that the universe is his jurisdiction of rule. His power is seen that by his mere word, he created the world. There was no pre-existing matter. He spoke and there was. His honor is seen that he is the creator, God. And then he blesses creation, telling creation to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. The Lord is supreme, and in his supremacy, in his grace, he makes man in his image. He gives us a limited supremacy. He shares in part this attribute. He shares in part that we should have some glory, some honor, and some power over creation. He says, let us make man in our image, and let them have dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let them subdue it. Yet, man, you and I, we misuse our limited supremacy to rebel against the supreme one. In the garden, we know that Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree that, which was forbidden. And you and I, are mankind, we continue to misuse our limited supremacy. We rebel against the supreme one. You see, we have some vile misuses in our world. We have supreme leaders who are oppressive dictators. We have racial supremacists who think that one skin makes one superior over another. We also have some civil misuses of supremacy. We think that athletes truly reign from one year to the next. We think that universities and companies and organizations have more honor and more glory than one another, yet all of this will be unraveled. In our fallen state that we misuse our limited supremacy, God, using his glory, his honor, and his power, continues to remind us of his supremacy. In Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth. When was the last time you summoned the earth? He speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He says in verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Verse 15, he tells his people to call upon him in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me, God and His supremacy continues to remind us though we have rejected and rebelled Him with our limited supremacy, He is for us. Ultimately, He makes the final sacrifice that would once and for all bring about the redemption for those with faith in Christ Jesus. We know that God rules over the wills of men proverbs twenty one one reminds us that that the the heart of kings of this world are in his hand, he turns them where he will psalm one thirty six or one thirty five six says that he does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas, in all deeps, God does whatever he pleases, and in redemption, as he does whatever he pleases, he cements his supremacy, his eternal superiority and glory honor, and power through the cross. This is why Paul writes that I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is why he can then later say in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and God in his supremacy conquers all foes. The Supreme One steps in and draws his people to himself. His people, from Jew to Gentile, from covenant to covenant, from past to present to future, from Palestine and to the ends of the world, the Supreme One draws his people to himself. And the Lord is supreme throughout all the world. The Lord alone is supreme throughout all the world. He has eternal glory. He has eternal honor. And he has eternal power that he does not misuse, that he does not abuse. Therefore, the supremacy of God demands obedience from all peoples. We know how the story ends in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The Supreme One demands obedience from all peoples. He demands it and He will receive it. So let us obey Him by giving Him praise. Psalm 117, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Not just church, not just Israel. Praise the Lord all nations. Extol him all people. So obey him by giving him praise. Obey him by trusting in him for salvation alone. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Praise him and trust in him. Obey him now and know him now. Brothers and sisters, we will enjoy him forever. We will enjoy the supreme one who shares himself with us. If he must be obeyed, he will be obeyed. He is supreme. And if he will be obeyed, church, there is responsibility on us to declare his goodness, his righteousness to the nations. Romans ten fourteen reminds us with, with the question, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? These attributes that were held before you this morning about God. And now that we think about his supremacy and yet the great travesty, the great tragedy of our day is that there are people who have never heard. The supreme one is truly supreme. And church, you and I have a responsibility to share Because God is supreme. There is none like him. The nations are being deceived. And we must share the gospel with our brothers and sisters to remind them of what we believe. And we must share the gospel with our neighbors and with the nations. So believer, will you obey him every day? Will you worship him and proclaim his goodness? And non-believer, has the case been made clear that God is good? God is loving and he is supreme. Will you bow the knee today and worship him? Where we started, Revelation 4, verse 11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We see God's supremacy from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. God's supremacy is known in this world, and it will be known for ages and ages to come into eternity. Let us praise and pray to our lord god we thank you that there is none like you we thank you that you have bought a people for your own possession we thank you lord god that you would bring us here today to assemble to study who you are lord i pray that though there was a lot of information may may those gathered here today take away a bigger picture of you May we point one another continually to you, to the cross. And Father, may we respond appropriately now through worship. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.